Uh, I already apologize for this not being a Christmas message. Uh, I also need to apologize because in the midweek email I said we'd be spending time in the book of Job, and we are not. I, <laughs> I started going down that road and just felt, uh, I don't often do this, and you guys who have been a part of the church family for a long time, but I just kind of felt, well, we'll know that that's true, but I just kind of felt redirected to a different text. So if you read the midweek email and you were excited for a sermon on Job, I'm sorry, it's going to be somewhere else. We're actually going to be in the first book of James, uh, the verses 2 through 5 of the book of James. And the conversation I want to have this morning uh, to wrap up our series for uh, this will make the eighth week that we've been talking about courage and fear. We started about eight weeks ago by um, talking about the most common, oft-repeated command in all the Bible. When God issues a command, the most common command in the Bible is to fear not. And we've talked over the span of these weeks about uh, different ways that God's people are tempted to fear. We've talked about the uh, courage to live in a countercultural way. We've talked about the courage for Christian mission. We've talked about the fear of man. We've talked about the fear of death. We've talked about the fear of the unknown. And the fear of the unknown is that kind of that species of fear that kind of flourishes in the world of what could be, what's possible, but not what is, at least not what is yet. And back when we talked about the fear of the unknown, I said that we were going to get around to talking about, yeah, but what about when my fears come true? It's one thing to fear a diagnosis with a, of an illness. But it's another thing to be told you have an illness. What about then? It's one thing to fear the death of your child when that's a potentiality, but what about when that is the reality you're looking at? Where's God then? What are God's purposes in a season like that? And so this morning, I want to take up a very difficult subject. What about when our fears come true? What about that? In James 1, 2 through 5, uh, the Holy Spirit has this to say to us through the inspired pen of James. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Uh, this is the very beginning of James's letter. This is right after his introduction. The very first thing he wants to say to the people that he loves and cares about is this, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, the context for this letter is an interesting one. James is head of the church in Jerusalem. He's basically a pastor of the Christians who uh, were in Jerusalem, but through intense persecution, the church has been scattered. And he's writing this letter to them because they are facing trials, as he puts, of various kinds, which I think is probably a, an incredible understatement. What this means is that their sufferings were diverse. They're not all suffering in the same way, but apparently there was a lot of suffering going on. And because James launches into his letter with this and then returns to it throughout, throughout his letter, I think we see that this idea of suffering in the church was a major issue among the believers whom God had called him to shepherd. 
James, again, was the principal leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was a pastor, and he had no doubt been hearing reports about people he loved and cared about that things were not going well for them. They had fled the city due to intense persecution. They were now scattered around uh, the, the country. And normally, he probably would have gone to them directly, but because they are scattered... He puts pen to paper and he writes down his thoughts in an open letter to his church. And that's how we end up with this book. And brothers and sisters, James may not have had you in mind when he wrote these words. He had other faces, other names, other circumstances in mind. But because he is writing to people facing trials of various kinds and not a specific set of unique circumstances... We know that his advice can be applied to what you're facing as well. These are words addressed to people whose fears have come true. These words are for you. So when James says, trials of various kinds, I am imagining some of the same things that many of you have experienced in life, and if the Lord will tarry, will experience. Broken bodies broken homes, broken dreams, broken hearts, broken promises, broken friendships, broken plans, broken trust, a future cut short. And what I want you to see here is this. In verses 2 through 4, James wanted to encourage his friends by telling them that for the Christian, there is purpose in times of suffering. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. According to this verse, these verses, trials of various kinds are used by God to produce two things, steadfastness and maturity. Steadfastness is perseverance, and endurance in the faith. And maturity is the idea that we are brought along to a place where we trust God more fully and that we have personally become more like the God who has saved us. And so the the big idea here in these verses is that there is something more excellent and more needed than being delivered out of the difficult thing you're going through. I think this is one of the hard things that Christians need to believe, not just intellectually, but on a heart level. Um, I can think back to times in my own life where I was going through something difficult, and I would say about 99% of my prayer life was, God, get me out of here. (laughs) Bring this to an end. And uh, James is here opening up our eyes to something else, that there is something more excellent, more good better and more needed than being delivered out of trials. This is a difficult truth, and this is the kind of thing that's hard and probably unwise to say to somebody who's right in the middle of it. Uh, They're probably more likely to slap you (laughs) than say that's helpful. But maybe today is just a a time where we need to uh, spend some time thinking about these truths this morning. The trial is being used to transform you, and that's needed. Consider this in Romans 8, 28 through 29. Romans 8, 28, I think, I find, is a much more well-known verse than 
than 29. But verse 28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. But then verse 29 goes on to say what that good thing is that He intends to work about through the bad thing that's happening. Verse 29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So in 8.28, he says, God works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And the good thing that he's going to work is in the middle of that, he's going to make you more like Jesus. Now, I'm willing to bet that most of you want to become more like Jesus. If we had a show of hands, how many of you want to become more like Jesus? Let's actually do it. How many of you want to become more like Jesus? Yeah, all right. <laughs> I'm also, but now show of hands, how many of you want to go through trials? But what if God's means of making you more like Jesus was trials? Do you want to become more like Jesus so much that you would count it all joy when you enter into trials? That's an interesting question. James says that the purpose of suffering at least the good thing that God bends suffering toward. Remember, God's a redeemer God. I think you can chuck lemons at God all day and he'll make lemonade out of it. And so when all this sin and brokenness and fallen disorder, when we're navigating it and we're right in the middle of it, the good thing that God works in the middle of all that bad stuff, the sweet fruit of these bitter days that we're living in, is that he makes us more and more like Jesus in the midst of it. And that's God's purpose in suffering. Its purpose, at least in part, is to make us more and more like Jesus. So here's the base question in all of this. Which do you want more? Do you want comfort? Or do you want to be like Jesus? Strange as it may seem, one of the primary purposes of being shaken by suffering is to make our faith more unshakable. Faith is like muscle tissue. Uh, You can't get stronger without breaking it down, using it, working hard. If you stress it to the limit, it gets stronger, not weaker. And that's what James means here. When your faith is threatened and tested and stretched to the breaking point, the result for those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a greater capacity to endure and a greater dependency on God. There is a sweet maturity that comes from having walked with God through that difficult thing. God loves faith so much that He will test it to the breaking point so as to refine it and grow it. For example, He did this to Paul. Paul says this in his his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, "'We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia.'" For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now the words here, but that was so, show that there was a purpose in this extreme season of suffering that Paul was going in. Paul looks at this and he says, now, but that was so this. He sees God's purpose. He sees his fingerprints all over the difficult thing he had been going through. 
And that was that in order that Paul would not rely on himself, but on God. For those who persevere and continue trusting and yielding to Christ and pursuing him as their highest treasure, bitter days will produce the sweet fruit of steadfastness and maturity. Then we come to verse 5. Verse 5 is an interesting one. Uh, I first became aware of verse 5 when I was a young person. I think I was graduating from high school, maybe. And on the inside of a card I received as a as part of a congratulations for graduating from high school, was verse 5 of James 1. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generally to all without reproach, and it will be given him. I think this is a a favorite verse for people who are at like a crossroads in their life. What am I going to do next? Am I going to zig or am I going to zag? Ask God for wisdom. But I think that if we look at this verse and the overall flow of what James is saying up to this point, it's very striking that at the end of verse 4, he says that trials, uh, these seasons when your fears come true, bring you out to a place where you're mature, lacking in nothing. And then in the very next verse, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So he's really continuing the same thought. It's this idea of lacking nothing if you lack wisdom. And so we really do a harm, I think, to this verse when we remove it out of its context because it kind of strips it of all of its weight, its meaning, its power. So let's look at this in terms. First of all, it says here that God gives generously. Uh, It's almost like God is daring you to pray this prayer. I mean, God surrounds this promise with such incredibly expansive language And it's a wonder to me that I have so rarely actually prayed this prayer specifically. God has said in His Word, if you lack wisdom, ask for it. And He's going to give it to you generously and without reproach to all. And that's incredible language, generously, to all. No fine print. (laughs) No, No reproach attached. It's amazing. First of all, Romans 8.32 says this, regarding the thought that he gives generously, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God purchased you at incredible expense on the cross. He's not now going to become stingy with you. And so when we come to God and we believe him that he gives generously this thing, The only reason we're not asking for it is because that's not what we want. Wisdom, that's great, God. I know you're willing to give me wisdom, but but, but I have a better idea. (laughs) What what if you just took me out of this stuff? I I know you want to change me in the midst of these circumstances, but I really want you just to get me out of these circumstances. Now, God has promised to give you something. It's there. God's people are not picking it up through this prayer through believing this promise. And I think it comes back to what I want does not line up with what God has promised to give. And I have to rest in the superior wisdom of God, that what He's promised to give is better and more needed and will bring me more joy than what I want Him to give. This next thing He says is He'll do this to all, not to some, not to others. This promise is for you this morning. He says, ask for wisdom, and I'm going to give it to you. I'll give it to all, and without reproach. 
No matter how many times you have embraced foolishness rather than wisdom, you can't, I, I, I'm terrible at this when my kids come to me with a request and they've been not doing what I ask them for days. Like, they want a ride somewhere, and I'd be like, did you clean your room? <laughs> I'm capable of that. But God is saying here, if you come to me and ask me for this good thing, no, you're not going to get a reproach in response. You richly deserve one, maybe. But God says, I'm going to give this to you without reproach. No matter how many times you've failed and blown it and failed to take the wisdom that I've put on offer, if you ask for it now, I'm going to give it to you. Generously to all without reproach. Generous language. God's daring you to pray this prayer. The idea of lacking wisdom is tied to what James says in the previous verse. So this request for wisdom is somehow tied to the ongoing conversation about trials. For after saying that the goal of trials in the Christian life is that we would lack nothing, James follows that up immediately by stating that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God for it. So I think that the idea of wisdom, that, that the, wisdom is needed for trials to have their desired effect in the life of a Christian. Wisdom is necessary and desirable if we are to be steadfast and mature. Trials have this effect of training believers into more sturdy Christ followers who are spiritually mature. This is what is meant by perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. James is not saying that such a believer is perfect in the sense that they are without sin or fault or error or that they smell good, but that they have been driven to a more perfect trust in Christ. All of their needs are being met in Christ. They're satisfied in Him. And it's, I, it really is what we lack or what we fear we will lack that brings all the sting and sleeplessness and worry to a time of trial. But in James 1.4 says that the result of all that steadfastness and maturity born of a trial is that we're made perfect, lacking in nothing. I believe that as in, in a time, in a season where fears have come true, that as Christians lean into Jesus and Jesus catches them, as we bring him worries about a future cut short, he promises eternal life and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. When we are wronged, cheated, stolen from, he reminds us that we have a better and lasting possession in Christ and that there is a treasure laid up where rust, moth, and thief can't destroy or plunder. We bring him our loneliness, and he reminds us that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. We bring him our wrecked bodies, and he promises that we will be given new ones, and that even this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. We bring him those who have wronged us, and he reminds us that there is a coming day of justice, and that vengeance belongs to him. We bring him our anxiety, and he give us, gives us a peace that passes all understanding. We bring him our lack of money, and he reminds us of his words in Matthew 6, that if God so feeds the birds and clothes the flowers, will he not do the same for his own children? 
As we are trained through our trials to trust and cling to Christ, remaining steadfast, we're brought to a more perfect maturity where we can say like the Apostle Paul, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And in Philippians 3, he says, But whatever were gains to me now, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is the idea in verse 4. Bitter trials produce the sweet fruit of steadfastness and maturity, which in turn brings us to a place where we are weaned off of a dependence on this world and present circumstances to a more perfect trust in God and His eternal promises. And then in verse 5, we're told, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And this is really so key. Uh, All human beings have trials. Nobody's immune. But wisdom is the difference between going through something and growing through it. Some people just grit their teeth. They hunker down. They power through somehow, one foot in front of the other. But they don't grow. And the difference between that is the presence of wisdom. I liken it to this. Uh, Here's how I'll try to make this a Christmas message, (laughs) very awkwardly. Uh, Every year, one of my favorite traditions is when we go down into the basement, it's part of it, and bring up the Christmas decorations. It's It's a celebration that seems to be uniquely my role in the house. The kids don't help very much. Maybe this year we can broaden this observance, more people can haul totes out of the basement. But there is a canister there that contains all of our stockings. And it has one stocking that is a treasured, prized possession from my own childhood. I've been hanging that very stocking on the mantle since I was a wee little tater tot. And the thing of it is, if you pull that stocking out and you turn it inside out, it is just a bunch of, it's a mishmash of loose strings. You can see no discernible pattern. It's ugly. It's loose ends. You can't discern what the pattern is, but you turn it right side out, and all of a sudden, it's beautiful, crystal clear. There are Christmas trees, and there's musical notes on it. It says, joy to the world. There's lettering. I, I really think that uh, life, from our perspective in this fallen world, is like an inside-out Christmas stocking. It's messy. When we go through life, it just looks wrong and ugly. But I think wisdom is the God-given ability to perceive that God is weaving something beautiful from the other side. And that he sees an order, purpose, and beauty to it all that we can't see from our perspective in these days. I believe one day we will see clearly. But today, oftentimes, when we're going through it, it just looks wrong. We have questions. We can't make out the pattern. 
But wisdom amounts to this. It's the ability to see these things from God's perspective to some extent, to believe that there is something he's beautiful, he's weaving in the midst of what just looks like chaos to us right now. When it says that we walk by faith, not by sight, we very much want to see the pattern, but we have to trust there is one even if we can't see it. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's the language of Hebrews 11.1. Again, we just want God to turn this right side out. But wisdom amounts to the ability to see and believe that God is weaving something beautiful from the other side, the pattern of which is not yet discernible to us. We who are finite and limited and human will watch the unfolding story of our lives and will often despair or feel confused because we don't understand what we're seeing. From our perspective, it looks like there's no plan, no beauty. It doesn't fit together in a meaningful way. It's just wrong, ugly, hopeless, and painful. But wisdom and faith amounts to this. We trust that God is weaving this life of ours and that he sees beauty and meaning that we can't see right now. Wisdom is the ability to see our present circumstances through the eternal purposes of God. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The word fear in that verse doesn't mean terror in the original Hebrew. It carries more the meaning of reverence, respect, or just acknowledgement of God. So the beginning of wisdom is the belief that God exists and that he's at the center of all things and that he's weighty and significant. Wisdom is learning to give acknowledgement first to God in every situation. It involves turning to God first, pausing and saying, God sees something I don't see. And wisdom is this habit of turning to God and acknowledging him. I know what I see, but the real story is what you see, God. Open my eyes to see my circumstances from your perspective. Because that is the most true and helpful way of looking at them. And this is really, I think, the key to flourishing through trials. And how do we get it? Well, we ask for wisdom. I think one of the great purposes of suffering in the lives of believers is that it trains us to seek our satisfaction and our joy in God and not in this world. Uh, This last week, as I was leaving our staff meeting on Tuesday, I fell into conversation with Dave, and I think Andrew was there, Pastor Andrew, and we were talking about something that that was bothering us, a horrible tragedy. And um, I just shared that one of the great benefits of that crisis that those people are going through is that I'm too tempted to fall in love with the world. And every once in a while, something like this comes along, and it peels back the curtain and reveals this world for what it is. This is not a place to invest your heart. In trials, one of the great benefits of a trial is that we are so often tempted to love this world. And something comes along, and we go, oh, there is something coming to which I'm supposed to attach my hope and my heart's investment, and that's not this. This is a place full of disappointment and brokenness and disorder and diagnoses and horrible tragedies. But God has promised a coming day, a new order, when every tear will be wiped from every eye, and all of this will be swept away. 
And so he says that these days are preparing us for the uh, weight of glory in eternity. Suffering comes along, and it reveals the fruitlessness of trying to find what our hearts yearn for during our fleeting days in this sin-ravaged world. So one of the works of God that's accomplished through suffering is that we're trained by it to find our joy, contentment, peace, and satisfaction, not in our circumstances on the earth, but despite them. We're trained to suffer by, by suffering to place our faith in the promises of God and His coming king, kingdom, and not the lies of the world. I want to finish this morning with just a couple thoughts on prayers. Um, one of the questions I think that comes along in light of all that we've just talked about is, is it wrong to pray for deliverance from suffering? If you're somebody this morning and you're living in the midst of, your fears have come true, you're living in the midst of some, something terrible, is it wrong to pray that you would be delivered from that? I would say no, uh, certainly not. Uh, we all know folks whose fears have come true, and I'm not opposed to praying that they would be delivered out of the difficult thing that they're going through. Let's pray for that with faith, at least until God puts a new prayer on our lips. But we should also be praying for more than just that. I think it's a real shame that in my prayers, that is so often what I pray for to the exception of other things that I should be praying we should pray that God would accomplish the purposes that He has for us or our friends in this season of suffering that we find ourselves in. The Bible presents suffering as something that God uses as a refining, sanctifying tool by which we are shaped and changed and through which we tell others about who our God is and His value to us. For the Christian, there is purpose in suffering. In suffering, the Christian becomes a student and a teacher all at once. It teaches us things we need to learn, and through it, we preach sermons with our very lives to those who are looking on. So if suffering is purposeful, God has purposes in it, and it is not meaningless and random, shouldn't that affect how we pray about suffering in our lives? If essentially our prayers boil down to all too often, God, please stop this lesson, <laughs> God, don't help me learn. God, help me just stop your instruction. I don't want it. So the Bible presents this as purposeful, good, needed. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses the analogy of taking a cat to the vet. The cat hates it every minute of it. Everything's wrong. It's being roughly handled and shoved into crates and held down on an examination table. The cat hates every single moment of going to the vet has no appreciation for the fact that all the cramming and shoving and rough treatment and cutting open has to do with treating something that would kill it. And I think if we look at all of the rough treatment in this world, um, wisdom is the ability to say that God is good and His allowing this must be needed. And I don't see that, God, but I'm going to rest confidently in who you are. So if suffering is purposeful and not meaningless and random, that really should affect how we pray about the suffering in our lives. So yes, I'm not opposed to praying for deliverance. We find those prayers all over the Bible. We studied one last week when we took up the story of Gideon. That was a prayer for deliverance that God answered. 
but not before doing uh, something about the sin in the midst. It's interesting to me that when Paul would ask for prayers in the Bible, it was not that he would be delivered from prison where he was in chains for the sake of the gospel. He would pray that he would ask for prayer that he would be bold and faithful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus while in prison. That's interesting to me. I have to thank Rob Timms for these uh, next few insights that I'm going to close with. Rob Timms says, The purposes for suffering that we find in Scripture should guide our prayers more than our predetermined positive outcomes. What would happen if we allowed Scripture to provide the outcomes we prayed toward? What if we expanded our prayers from praying solely for healing and deliverance and success to praying that God would use the suffering and disappointment and dead ends in our lives to accomplish the purposes He has set forth in Scripture? Scripture provides us with a vocabulary for expanding our prayers for hurting people far beyond our predetermined positive outcomes. Instead of praying only for relief, we begin to pray that the glory of God's character would be on display in our lives and the lives of those for whom we are praying. We pray for the joy of discovering that the faith we have given lip service to over a lifetime is the real deal. We ask God to use the difficulty to make us less self-reliant and more God-reliant. Rather than only begging Him to remove the suffering in our loved ones' lives, we ask Him to make them spiritually fruitful in the midst of suffering He chooses not to remove. Tim's continues, he says, The Westminster Shorter Catechism for Young Children asks the question, What is prayer? And the answer is given, Prayer is asking God for things which He has promised to give. And are we praying for things God has promised to give, like His presence with us, His Word guiding us, His power working in us, His purpose accomplished through us? And I would add, these are my words, not Tim's, wisdom. (laughs) Pray for wisdom. Or are we limited to praying only for what He has not promised to give, complete physical healing and wholeness in the here and now? To go deeper than praying only for deliverance means that we approach prayer not as a tool to manipulate God to get what we want, but as a way to submit to what He wants. Through prayer, we draw close to Him in our need. We tell Him that we will not insist on our predetermined positive outcome, but want to welcome Him to have His way, to accomplish His purpose in our lives. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we are living in the midst of days where fears come true. But Father, I remember your command so often repeated over a hundred times in the Bible to not be afraid. Father, we would not have the fears that we have if we were godlike, but we do have you, our God. And all of us in the midst of our fears are like sheep who wish we were the shepherd. But we have a shepherd. And Father, you have said to count it all joy when we enter into trials of various kinds, meaning varying in severity, varying in the differences that exist between them. And so, Father, you say that your purpose in these, the sweet fruit you want to bring out of these bitter days is that we would become more and more like Jesus. 
And so, Father, we together as a people with one heart ask you to give us wisdom. God, give it to us as a gift. Father, give it to us generously. Father, Jesus said in John 16, that in this world you will have trouble. Father, we believe that. As it says in the book of Job, that man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Father, all human beings living in this sin-ravaged world, their fears are going to come true. But Father, we ask for wisdom. God, we ask for wisdom to see these things in light of your great eternal purposes. We pray that you would give us the wisdom to rest and trust you and to grow in steadfastness and maturity that we might lack nothing. God, that we would rest in perfect peace, confidently trusting in you, our shepherd God, that what you've allowed to enter our lives is for our good, that you're for us. God, I pray that we would preach wonderful sermons of confidence in you in the midst of the difficult things we go through. God, thank you for remembering that we're made of dust. Thank you for your patience with us. God, I pray that you would make us more and more mature as we continue to follow Jesus in the midst of this world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.